You're listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Leadership. What does the Pope have to say to us today? What do Popes from the past have to say to us today? Maybe you follow Pope Francis on Twitter. Maybe you have followed what he has to say, his encouraging words, his homilies. And indeed, we might have things that we would learn from Pope Francis. But maybe if we dig a little bit deeper into papal history, there's another fellow that we can learn from, a fellow by the name of Pope Benedict XVI. Now, already it's to ask a question of what can we learn from those that wouldn't share all of our theological beliefs or values or principles And I think that's a good posture for humility, which is the one that we need if we are indeed going to learn. So today's guest is here to help us discover what we might learn from Pope Benedict XVI. Today's guest is Reverend Dr. Tim Perry. Tim is a faculty uh, for theology at St. Paul University. Tim is an adjunct professor at Trinity School for Ministry, and he is my brother. So... Uh, It's a real honor to have him on the podcast today. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsors and then enjoy the podcast. We are Wesley and you belong here. My name is Victoria Borum and I am Wesley. I'm Lenny Lucchetti and I am Wesley. My name is Chris and guess what? I am Wesley. Hi, I'm Tina Shoppett and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt, and I am Wesley. I am Wayne Brown, and I am Wesley. I am Colleen Durr, and I belong here. You belong here, too, because we are Wesley. Welcome to the Wesley Seminary Podcast, Tim. It's a joy to have you with us. Thank you. Good to be with you, Aaron. So you've just finished editing this volume, The Theology of Benedict XVI, A Protestant Appreciation. It's a collection of Uh, chapters from a number of different Protestant authors on the theology of Benedict. And as I started going through this book, I thought, boy, there are some things that Benedict has thought about that I'm trying to think about now. And he's he's actually a good conversation partner. He's somebody that I can learn from. And so as I was going through it, I thought this would be a good topic for the podcast. So thanks for coming on and for doing the work that helped to spark my own interest in Benedict. No problem at all. Happy to be here. So why don't you start out by telling our listeners, some of them, this might be the first podcast they've ever listened to about Pope Benedict, and maybe all they know is his name, and maybe they haven't even heard that for a while. What do we need to know about Benedict just to start this conversation? Uh, well, he, he represents, I think, the, the end of a certain way of doing Catholic theology, and uh, maybe the beginning of a, a kind of a new wave of doing Catholic theology. I'm not sure, but um, most of your listeners, I hope, will know that his name before uh, he became Pope was Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, he was a major German intellectual and theologian. He really came into his own uh, in uh, the 1960s. Um, He was part of the German delegation at the Second Vatican Council, um, one of the advisors to one of the the, uh, German bishops there. And uh, he was a a leading light, uh, ironically enough, 
uh, on the more the more liberal end of things uh, with, uh, for example, Karl Rahner. And uh, this changed in 1968, which um, in, in a lot of ways actually uh, looks like what we're experiencing now in terms of uh, social unrest and uh, upheaval. So, uh, uh, so at a time of, of great unrest, particularly in uh, in Europe, and uh, Ratzinger was was quite uh, spooked by this at the time, and was quite alarmed by what he saw as his his kind of liberal uh, colleagues' inability to to mount any significant criticism of the social unrest and and even to support it and it, it moved him in a more tradition friendly uh direction and he he became one of the leaders of the more traditional end of things um after the the second vatican council he moved quite quickly uh, up the curial ladder um, he became the uh, cardinal archbishop of munich in the late 70s and uh, from there uh, after uh, uh, Karol Wojtyla was elected to be Pope John Paul II, now Pope Saint John Paul II, um, uh, Ratzinger was appointed to be the uh, the uh, leader of the uh, the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith, which we might remember is the the new name of the uh, old, uh, formerly named uh, Inquisition. Um, he was in charge of maintaining doctrinal purity across global Catholicism. Uh, in addition to that, late in his career, he was appointed Dean of the College of Cardinals. And uh, at the, the death of uh, John Paul II, he, he preached a very powerful sermon uh, uh, on the dictatorship of relativism. Hmm. And shortly thereafter, he was elected, uh, taking as his name uh, Benedict, Pope Benedict XVI. And then I think it's the, the last kind of surprising move he made was to uh, abdicate uh, his office, which paved the way for the election of Francis. Uh, and he has lived a, a largely quiet life uh, in a monastery on the grounds of the Vatican um, ever since. Uh, he still dresses in white. He's still addressed as uh, your holiness or the Holy Father, but he is Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth. So you mentioned his leadership of a um, a council that oversaw doctrinal purity. Is that where he picked up the nickname God's Rottweiler? Yep. And how did he develop that nickname? Well, um, he believes that uh, the Catholic Church, uh, the Catholic faith, is a dogmatic. Faith. Uh, that is, uh, it uh, makes certain claims about the way things really are, uh, and to uh, dissent from those claims uh, requires you to, um, you know, heaven forbid, requires you to actually give up the ability to say I'm teaching as a Catholic. So you know, you can you can be a Catholic, you can be a theologian who's Catholic. And say all kinds of things, but you can't be a Catholic theologian who openly and publicly dissents from what the Catholic Church teaches. Uh, if that happens, you will run afoul 
of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, regardless of who's in charge. Um, uh, it's obviously it's no longer uh, Cardinal Ratzinger. Uh, and you know you 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 may be censured for that. Um, the the irony of that, of course, is being censured by the CDF uh, ensures that your books will sell a lot more, um, that you'll get a lot more favorable press in the secular media, and you'll end up making a whole lot more money, uh, particularly if you decry how persecuted you're being. So I'm hearing uh, one of the things that sets uh, Pope Benedict aside was his. Uh, focus for doctrinal precision and faithfulness and even accountability. Now that might be uh, something that people would say, well, how did that influence his papacy? How did that influence how he went about being Pope? And we often see the Pope as one who is, uh, well, a, a father to us, right? Even, even those who are not part of the Catholic faith think of the Pope as a, as a, a father figure as one who is uh, praying for and trying to care for a very wide constituency in the, in the world. How did that personality and that set of uh, appointments that Ratzinger had, how did that influence his papacy? Uh, it's hard to say, not least because his papacy was so short. Um, certainly, he'll be remembered as a great teaching pope. And in that, he certainly stands uh, in the same vein as his predecessor. Um, John Paul II was not uh, a, a biblical theologian the way uh, Benedict is. He's more of a uh, he was more of a, a philosopher, particularly a philosopher of the human person. Um, but he was a great teaching pope, to be sure. And Benedict stands in that tradition. Uh, ben Benedict was a, is a uh, before he became Pope, but afterwards as well, uh, was a, a theologian. Uh, and uh, in his own mind, a, a theologian that was far more concerned with um, the Bible, uh, the exegesis of Scripture, and with a close reading of the Fathers as those writers who teach us how to read Scripture. Um, in fact, he contrasts himself uh, in his little book, uh, Last Testament, he contrasts himself with his erstwhile colleague, Karl Rahner, uh, who was more of a philosophical theologian uh, following in kind of after Thomas Aquinas, uh, you know, not being a Thomist in the traditional sense, he was a neo-Thomist, but in terms of his willingness to engage with philosophical questions and uh, over against that, Ratzinger saw himself more as a theologian of the Bible and the Fathers. Um, so he'll be remembered, I think, as a teaching pope. Um, I, th I think, and I, I, I say this as, as an admirer, absolutely, but I, I think he, his legacy will be that he, he was not very politically adept, um, which, is, which is ironic, uh, given the way he moved in curial circles for his, uh, his entire career. But he seems really to have been beaten by the politics of the office, uh, which is quite a sad thing. And I think one of the reasons why he uh, made way for Francis was the hope that um, a younger uh, pontiff, a stronger pontiff, um, could do the uh, political house cleaning that needed to be done. And, uh, you know, uh, 
Francis provokes strong reactions among people, so I'm, I'm not gonna, going to go there at all. But I, I, I do think that that's why uh, Pope Benedict abdicated. My next question is one that I've already started to form an answer to, perhaps. Uh, the question is, well, what are some of the things that um, uh, evangelical Christians um, using that word in a theological sense and trying to apply it to more than simply the United States where it can end up being a, a voting block. But what are some of the things that evangelical Christians through the West are wrestling with that, that Ratzinger can help us with? And actually one of the things that I'm reflecting upon is um, uh, simply just the, the fact maybe that those in spiritual leadership, whether it's more formal or informal, are occupying an office that does have an element of politics to it. Now we can use politics in a negative and, and uh, uh, pejorative way, right? You know, kind of like a, almost a curse word, right? Being political. Um, but there is a way that, uh, how do we go about facilitating common values? How do we go about uh, sharing, uh, bringing people together so that common good can be accomplished? And, and that kind of thing, which a lot of pastors feel, they feel the pressure of that. And, and there is a weight to it. So maybe they can already be favorably disposed to somebody that had to wrestle through that in a, in a well, the, the largest uh, public office that Christians uh, would certainly see, right? I don't, I don't think there's a larger uh, office that one could hold in the Christian world than, than the Pope, as far as it's... I think you can make that a bit broader. I think it's actually the, there's no larger office in the world. Yeah. So you know, maybe, maybe they can maybe they can be favorably disposed to learning from him since they see somebody who's had that kind of weight on his shoulders in a in a very unique, if uh, if uh, um, empathetic in an empathetic way. So what what does what does uh, Pope Benedict have to say to us, and how might he teach us on things that we as evangelicals in the West are wrestling with? What makes Benedict an ally? is the fundamental presupposition from which he writes everything. And that is, uh, God has spoken. Mm. Um, uh, and because God has spoken, we as believers need to attend to what God has said. Um, the fullness of God's speech is contained in Holy Scripture, which is the witness to God's speech in flesh, who is Jesus Christ. Um, that automatically makes Ratzinger slash Benedict uh, an ally of believers on the other side of the Tiber who uh, believe similarly, you know, that there is such a thing as revelation, that there is such a thing as theological truth, that uh, the Christian faith is at its core, not a social construction, but a divine revelation to which we must attend, uh, which calls us to an attitude of, of reverence, of humility, of obedience, of following, you know, which is what a disciple is. Uh, it's not something that we get to make up as we go along. Um, so I think that that automatically makes him an ally. Uh, 
what also I think makes him someone worth paying attention to is the way in which his own words have proven to be prophetic. Uh, over 50 years ago, uh, in, a, in a, a speech, I can't remember the title of it right now, but it's quoted in my book. Um, he predicted that uh, the, the global church, he was thinking of Catholicism in particular, but it's, it's mirrored in every denomination right now. Uh, the global church was was uh, about to enter a period of decline um, that, uh, you know, as early as 1958, um, in an article called The New Pagans in the Church, he was saying that, that then, you know, global Christendom was already um, hollowed out from the inside and that the trappings of its success after the Second World War were really only liminal. They were only on the surface. And then in the late 60s, he, he repeated that judgment. He said, you know, the church was was about to enter a time of significant decline um, through which it would emerge uh, more holy, uh, more chaste, uh, more poor, uh, and, and with much less uh, political power. Um, the last 55 years have vindicated that judgment thoroughly. Um, so in, in that sense, I think I know lots of people who disagree with me on this, but I, I think that in the providence of God, um, Benedict was in many ways a prophet for our age. Um, he told the people who had ears uh, what was coming, and he's been vindicated. So, you know, if, if a prophet's prophecy is vindicated, it seems to me he's someone that, that we're worth, worth paying attention to. Uh, uh, you know, and so for, for those reasons, uh, be, because he read the signs of the times rightly when many people did not, and because he shares with uh, traditionally minded Protestants a conviction that God has spoken, that Christian faith is a revealed faith, that we can uh, discover and discipline ourselves to respond to what God has revealed, um, that makes him someone we're wise to listen to. Trying to wrestle through the, uh, maybe the way that, that I encountered the, the first way that uh, Pope Benedict would be an ally. And I was recently on a, on a friend's podcast and there was some Q and A. And one of the questions was, as you might expect, what do we do with the violence of the old Testament, right? We have uh, God both acting and sanctioning violence. That is certainly, um, difficult for us to read if we want to if we want to take it seriously and there's there's a way that simply looking at that as a problem is a problem right that, that mm -hmm. thinking that this is a problem that a contemporary uh follower of jesus needs to overcome is already a problem because uh how do we take it seriously that what god has done and how god has acted is something for us not first to fix it's not a problem for us to fix but it's something for us to to observe and and uh, take take seriously um, that God did this and God God allowed this um, God but, and more than that you know from a hermeneutical perspective it's the arrogance of thinking no one's ever noticed it before hmm. you know and uh, goodness me I mean Christian theologians have been troubled with the violence of the Old Testament 
at least since St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. This is not new, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then we find, you know, the, the Rob Bell crew come along and discover it as though they're the first ones to have read it and have thought these thoughts. Uh, it's just, it's incredibly arrogant to think that they're the first ones who've got there, you know, like read a little bit. Well, let me, let me, use that to talk about, let me use that to talk about the second one, right? This, this appreciation for an historical moment. So Benedict is acting prophetically by, by saying this is the coming future of the church to be hollowed out and, and in many ways experience a judgment that will reveal um, it, for, it for what it is and not outside the grace of God, but precisely being the grace of God, because out of that you can have a, you can have a reemergence of, of, as you called it, a, a church that is uh, pure and more chaste and, and more committed. So it's a, there's a, an historical moment. And that ties back into the first one uh, in that a, a friend of mine, a friend of yours, who's a, an editor has this sense that we come across a question and in our moment, we haven't encountered anybody else who's asking that. And as a result, we think no one else in history has asked that question. And because we want to write something, uh, we ask a question, we find out our own answer, and we want to publish that and make that available for everybody, rather than just doing the work of saying, who else before me has asked that question, asked it better than I, than I have, answered it, and answered it better than I ever could. And I see that, well, perhaps Benedict is one who has done that work. Perhaps he is one who has done the work of wrestling through questions of uh, personhood, and questions of, uh, well, I'll let you fill in the blank. What, what other questions has Ratzinger wrestled with and come to answers that we would be wise to attend to and listen to because there are questions that we are asking, even though we're saying, okay, I'm not gonna presume to be the first person who's asked this question. Uh, well, I mean, a shameless plug for the book here. I could just go through chapter by chapter. Um, every one of those, I think, represents a question that is germane to uh, contemporary, uh, traditionally minded Protestant audience, um, and uh, you know, if if my book gets people to think, oh, you know, we're not the first persons to have wrestled with these questions. You know, there there is a place to go. Um, it's, I don't mean this to be crass, but like it's, it's not just me, my pastor and my Bible trying to figure this out. There's a, a whole larger centuries long conversation that's been taking place on this topic. And this guy has a, a sense of that whole tradition and he can teach it to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it seems to me there, there, there should be a place for, for him at the table. Um, so you know, pick, pick a chapter. I mean, obviously, I think that the big ones, the hot button ones today are, uh, are uh, around the area of anthropology. Um, you know, what it means to be human, what it means to be an embodied human. Um, he, I think he helps us think about the soul uh, uh, as, you know, um, the form of the body, to use the Thomist language, that soul and body are inextricably linked together. Uh, 
the soul is not just the the ultimate core of who we are and and we get to tinker with our body to make it reflect who we are in a better way uh, i think that's a, like a, a deficient anthropology ultimately a gnostic anthropology i think that's you know that's one place where he helps us think um i think he helps us think you know what it what it means to be uh church in a, a marginal situation in a way that is uh, devoid of political power. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, I think you would have some pretty sharp words for North American Christians, both on the right and on the left, who are so busy criticizing each other that neither sees that both of them are completely irrelevant to the political conversation right now. Mm-hmm. And, and that, being a faithful disciple of Jesus means doing something different than, you know, trying to capture the soul of this or that political party. Um, Let me interrupt interrupt you there because that is the first chapter and where things uh, start to launch from in, in the book is the chapter on uh, faith and faith and reason from uh, by Ben Myers. And he does a great job of putting his finger on the temptation which is to treat Christian faith as a religion and treating it as a religion strictly is to make it a sociology, right? Is a mm-hmm. way that we do life together. And even that phrase is one that is so bandied about, right? Is, is, is we form our communities by, by common values and shared practices and being formed uh, as persons into a, into a kind of image and all that is true. But what uh, Myers says that Ratzinger reminds us is that Christian faith is not first a religion and is not a sociology. It actually is the development of God's gracious word coming and, grab, and grabbing hold of people who are then bound together in Christ, right? Yeah, there's, it's, there's something it's theological about, the about it before it's sociological. It, it's, it's about the truth. Um, it's, like I said before, it, it's Christian faith is both... God's address to people and our response to that address. And so that, that presumes a number of things. Number one, that there is a God, that this God can speak, uh, that human beings have been created in such a way as to hear that speech and understand it, and that human beings are capable of responding to what they've heard. Mm. You know, there's a whole theological web of ideas just embodied in in that notion that that christian faith is not simply about a tradition it's about the way things are uh you know and and uh, i mean this this is this is another thing that 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 got him into trouble early on in his papacy was his is daring to say that, you know, if, if we're not willing to tell the truth and live according to the truth in peace, all that's left is violence. Uh, you end up with, you know, each side proclaiming their truth, and there is no arbiter called the truth by which the debate is settled. All that's left is to fight it out, and the stronger person wins. The stronger mm-hmm. tribe wins. And you know, you can turn on CNN for 10 minutes. You can see that's where we're at. 
you know, I, with, with the situation being described as that, I do understand why there's a kind of blend of uh, an ecclesiological apologetics, which is to say um, our existence as the local church or as, you know, the wider church, um, we defend that by being good and worthwhile and valuable to the world. And that's our apologetic, rather than um, humbly recognizing we have been called and bound by the word of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ in his Holy Spirit. And rather than accounting, rather than uh, being formed and meeting um, because of God's justifying work, we can uh, try to present ourselves as justifiable, right? As worthwhile to the world based on what our social ethic is and the good that we accomplish. And you can see, I can see why that's the case, right? It's, it's a difficult world to live in. And especially as we come into a time of uh, post-Christian faith in, in much of the West, uh, it's not an easy place uh, to be an individual Christian. And, it's, and we see that it's, not, it's going to be increasingly difficult to be, uh, to be a local expression of the church. Um, for a variety of reasons, right? I can see why people would want to frame their ecclesiological action to make themselves good and acceptable to the world rather than acting out of faith and gratitude or gratitude by faith that God has made us right with him. Yeah, is there a question in there? <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, to frame, um, what do I read on social media? What's some of the underlying angst and anxiety that I feel and, and that um, I see people trying to articulate in, in their own public spheres, which is usually social media. And then how does Ratzinger speak, or Pope Benedict, how does he speak, uh, or, or how might he speak uh, a pastoral word in the midst of it, right? A pastoral word, not simply of, of comfort, but also of leadership and even chastening and perhaps conviction. Right. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with your sentiments. Um, I, I think, I think, a, a, you know, a close reading of, of Ratzinger, I think he would wean us from the perceived need to be relevant. Mm. Uh, you know, if, if in fact Christian faith is about telling the truth, then, you know, the, the need to be relevant really is not nearly as important as it, you know, is sometimes is perceived as being. Um, so I, I, I think it might be, a, you know, a word of liberation to, to pastors who have discovered that X, Y, or Z way of being church doesn't attract the mythical seeker. And so they have to do something else. Um, you know, may, maybe what they have to do is uh, to, to borrow from from Flannery O'Connor, a Catholic American novelist uh, and short story writer. Maybe they need to, you know, let their Christianity make them odd. Uh, don't be relevant. Be biblical. And if being biblical makes you be odd, be odd. 
and and God will draw those whom He wants. I mean, that that might sound a little too reformed for some of your Wesleyan ministers, but but there's a truth to that, you know. Um, God is forming a people. He's forming them by disciplining them according to the truth. He is the truth. Um, and, 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 and that's going to make us increasingly out of step. Uh, we somehow, somewhere along the line, accepted the notion that being a conservative Christian meant being what a liberal Christian was 25 years ago. <laughs> and it's, it's not. Um, conservative and liberal are increasingly nonsensical terms with respect to Christian faith. It's just, will, will you be a faithful Christian or not? That's, that's where the, the, the issue is, is boiling down to in, increasingly. And I think reading Ratzinger is a good way to stiffen our spines and say, yes, I will be faithful, even if being faithful means, you know, uh, the cost of social acceptance in wider society. Uh, I'm afraid that that many of, of us, and I include myself, are far more comfortable with wanting to attain the American dream, especially for our children, than we are with wanting to be faithful disciples, regardless of the consequence. And someone like Ratzinger helps us see that dilemma, that decision in really sharp relief. And that's why he's important. Joining us today has been Dr. Tim Perry. Dr. Perry is, uh, in addition to being uh, my brother and one from whom I have learned and with whom I reflect on a consistent basis, is also the editor and one of the contributing authors to The Theology of Benedict XVI, The Protestant Appreciation, published by Lexham Press, in which you will have an introduction, chapter by chapter, to what uh, Pope Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger, had to say about a number of issues. And we've talked about some of those issues today. And I want to leave what uh, Tim has said as the final word, that we can draw uh, faith and one uh, faith that helps us to stand straight and, and kneel humbly uh, before the true Lord rather than uh, before any other undeserving one. That, that Pope Benedict is one who can help us do that regardless of whether or not we would count ourselves as Catholic or not. He does have a word to us in the Protestant tradition. So thanks so much, Tim, for joining us. It's uh, always nice to chat with you, and especially when I get to count it as work like this. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad I could help out. Thanks, listeners, for tuning in. I commend the book to you, The Theology of Benedict the Sixteenth, published by Lexham Press, edited by Tim Perry. Thanks, Cam, for uh, your editing help and uh, always making this sound better than it otherwise would have. Thanks, listeners, for tuning in. I hope that today's conversation is beneficial and valuable to you in your own leadership as you seek to learn from one who knew what it was like to uh, lead in a very political office. So thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in. Have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.